this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. What moving through the healthcare arena feels like, and we do that through film, through literature, through poetry, through art, and there's a lot of self-reflection. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us again. Today, Stephanie and I speak with Mr. Matthew McQuillan, who serves as the department chair for the Rutgers University Department of PA Studies and Practice, and as the chair of the Commission for the Accreditation Review Commission on Education for the Physician Assistant, which oversees accreditation for all of the PA programs in the United States. We spoke about Rutgers accreditation and Matt's passion for the medical humanities, which provides a deeper view of life through the lens of our stories. As always, you can learn more about Matt and his program through our show notes on our website, papathpodcast.com, under the blog section for show notes. Matt, thank you again for joining us today. Uh, Steph and I are excited to learn more about Rutgers and learn more about your background. Let's start by talking about your personal path to becoming a PA. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. First of all, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here, uh, Kevin, with both you and Stephanie. It's again, it's, it's hard to think about me being someone who folks have anything that they want to hear about. I'm very pleased to be here. So in terms of talking about background, when I became a PA in the early 90s, it was more typical for folks to come after a career change. And so PA was not something on my radar at all. Um, in fact, before entering the program at Rutgers, I never met a PA, so I didn't really know much about the profession other than some investigation. I had been a communications major. I had interned for Good Morning America. I thought I wanted to work in the news industry and then realized it wasn't for me. While I was interning at Good Morning America, I read about this upstart airline called People Express that was a very different model and hired individuals, all with college degrees, who were cross-fertilized or cross-trained to work in many areas of the company. And so in my last year of college, started working for them. Unfortunately, the airline was absorbed by Continental, and I had the, I had the airline industry bug. So I spent seven years there um, working as a crew member, but primarily working in training and recruiting. After bankruptcy number two of the airline, I realized it's time to change and do something different. I was looking at physical therapy, did some physical therapy shadowing, and realized that wasn't the right path for me. Hence why the shadowing is so important, right, for applicants to our programs. It was a very good friend of mine. Her mom had had, had surgery on her neck and said, you know, I, I met this guy who wasn't a physician. He's, he was a PA, never knew what that was. And I think that would be a great role for you. And that started my whole interest. So it was, you know, a little bit uh, divergent path to get there. The challenge for me was I was a communications and business major. I had no science courses, so I had to enroll at several local community colleges. Boy, that was a wake-up call. You know, my first chemistry exam, I received a 37, and I thought, my, my path is over. And I realized I had to step up my game. I had a tutor, and, you know, and, and here I am. Rutgers, where I eventually attended, was not on my radar initially. I really wanted to go to Baylor. I interviewed. They didn't accept me. I uh, thought my whole PA career was was not going to be uh, what I anticipated. And and um, I went and interviewed at Rutgers, and realized that was the place that I that I needed to be. And here you are. The, 
And here, and, and here I am, you know, it's uh, those folks who spent my whole career at the same institution. And I admire so much folks who have been able to head all around the country and be involved in programs. And I'm getting to that point in my life where I don't know if that's likely to happen. <laughs> sure, sure. Matt, you know, I've always said that uh, there's a recessive gene in some of us that draws us into education. You know, there's uh, there are there are a lot of folks that have a lot of talents, and I think the one of the beauties of the PA profession is that it leads people down so many different, interesting, and unique paths. And there's a the subset of us that uh, that our path leads us into education. Tell us a little bit about your transition from clinical medicine into to PA education. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Steph. I agree. And I am so grateful to be not only in the PA profession, but as a faculty member. Uh, We really have some amazing folks around the country that are so willing to work with each other and very strong friendships that have formed. In terms of how that happened, I actually was working at a local family practice when there was an opportunity for an adjunct physical diagnosis instructor that, that came to me and I decided to apply and and was hired. So twice a week, I would head to the program and, and facilitate a small physical diagnosis group and loved it. A year after that, there were two positions that opened up at the program. And one of my uh, classmates, Lori Palfreyman, called me and said, there's two positions. You know, if you apply, I'll apply. Let's apply together. And so in 1998, we started together and both still at the program. So, you know, I think there's a natural way that I've been led to some of these um, teaching or educational type of uh, positions. Um, As I mentioned previously, uh, when I was working for Continental Airlines, I spent most of my time in the training department and recruiting. And um, that is something I love tremendously. So it's interesting how that same thing occurred, you know, in the PA profession. It was not what I intended when I applied to PA programs. It was to be a clinical PA. And so, you know, it was sort of serendipity of how things changed. And I thought, I'll do this for a few years and see what happens. 23 years later, you know, here I am. Yeah, and you've had quite the path through leadership in in the program from starting as an adjunct physical exam instructor all the way up to uh, your new position. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. So, you know, you, you mentioned that you had interviewed other places and that you really felt that Rutgers was where you belonged. And and then here you are back at Rutgers, uh, kind of on the other side of the chalkboard, so um, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Rutgers and, you know, what was it that made it special for you when you attended there as a student? And what do you think sets Rutgers apart as a PA program now? Well, I, I first have to start by saying the feeling I received in that environment I don't think is necessarily unlike other programs. I know it's not unlike other programs in terms of the students, right? We we all have wonderful students that are so interested in bonding with each other and have the same goal of, of caring for others. Some of the reasons that Rutgers attracted me, and I think is a little bit different than some others, is the length of the program. So we're a 33-month program, which there's others of this length, but not many, you know, most typically in the 24 to 27-month range. And because I was someone without healthcare experience, I thought that would be more appropriate. I had offers at other programs, but eventually decided to to go to Rutgers. Uh, I was attracted to the fact that there was full basic science year, which was something I thought that was important for me because of my lack of a a science degree. Um, And at that time, some of the basic science courses were taught together with the medical students which was a strength, certainly kicked my butt 
first day of class when I sat through a histology lecture and thought they just covered everything I learned in a couple of semesters in one day. What am I in for? Right. So, but I persevered, you know, and it was the, the first time that I had an experience that many of our PA students um, experience these days. And that is what happens if I fail out? Now, none of us were individuals who ever worried about failing out of school. And all of a sudden, in PA programs, that feels like a reality or a possibility. So uh, to go back to your, to your question, Steph, that length of the program was very helpful. Um, also, the length and the varied clinical rotation opportunities was something that interested me. Again, based on my wanting to be sure that I was prepared to be a clinical PA without having had that background. And, you know, over time, the program has certainly built on that same philosophy in terms of basic sciences. Back then, we were about 21 to 23 credits per semester. Uh, we've scaled that back a little bit because we really want the students to master their coursework. So our first two semesters now are 18 credits. So we really want to look at some of the overlap and make sure that we're teaching the students the concepts that are needed. But I also was attracted to, and, and what we still have today, is the opportunity for experiences in varied types of settings. So we, you know, we're in suburban New Jersey, but we have access to rotations in urban areas, Newark, New Jersey, or even New York City, um, as well as some rural areas. At, at the time I was a student, we had a migrant worker clinic that we rotated at in South Jersey. Um, and so those varied experiences, I think, are, were important and still are important for preparing uh, PA students who can work with varied populations. At the time, that pass rate was impressive to me because um, up through, I graduated in 96 and, and for many, many years, it, the program had a consecutive 100% first time pass rate. As we increased class sizes, you know, we've, we had a few failures here and there, uh, but I, I looked at that and said, I know this program is going to prepare me, and that's what that's what I wanted. And so, you know, if we talk about the program today, that same philosophy, as I mentioned, still exists. And we've added some topics. We have a threaded medical humanities curriculum that was initially started by my former director and uh, department chair, Dr. Jill Reichman. Uh, both she and I enrolled in a doctor of medical humanities program. And we thought it was important to bring that aspect to our education. And what the medical humanities curriculum does is allow the students to experience from a patient perspective or a healthcare provider perspective or a family member perspective, what moving through the healthcare arena feels like. And we do that through film, through literature, through poetry, through art. And there's a lot of self-reflection. So we ask the students to talk about the impact of these stories on their lives and think about what that patient or what that other might be experiencing or what self is experiencing. And, and, and that has been very important to our curriculum. We've increased our diverse student population uh, very intentionally. Uh, we're fortunate to be in an institution where diversity is also supported. And, and I, when I say diversity, I should also be clear about diversity, equity, inclusion, justice. You have to have all of those elements together. And we have that philosophy amongst our faculty. We have the philosophy in our school, School of Health Professions. We have the philosophy at Rutgers University. That makes it easier for us to support students. You know, And one of the comments we hear, which 
really upsets me is when folks say, if you increase your, your student population and increase your diversity, your chances of, of students attriting is going to be higher or not passing the exam. Not, that's not true. You know, we, we did a deep dive into our admissions process and realized people, some of us with implicit biases, um, might have been screening out applicants who would be successful. So we looked at what those factors are that might have been causing someone to not want to uh, bring somebody in for an interview and did some education. Uh, and we saw our numbers change. We also realized that there was a need to support students, not because, solely because it was a diverse population, uh, but because we consider diversity in a very holistic manner, not only in terms of race, sexual orientation, uh, gender, socioeconomic status, but also educational background. When we accept students who do not have science degrees, but science prerequisites, they may struggle a little bit more. And, and what we did was start a program called GROSS, which is Great Review for Academic Success. It's a specific, almost tutoring type group where students are invited based on very specific criteria to give them additional educational support and mentoring to be successful in the program. Our first class that participated in that just graduated uh, and it was it was very successful. And so I bring these up as examples of what can be done to support students and show that you can have a diverse class. Uh, and it's 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 amazing. And you all know this because I know your beliefs and how you are at your own programs and that there's a richness in the classes when you have a diverse population. It's so interesting when the students will say, we we can't believe how much we love our class. And yet we're all so different. What is it that you look for? What's the common thread? It's hard to define what that common thread is other than a passion for medicine, of course, for caring for people. Um, but I, I think if we're talking about some advice to students, it's reminding every applicant that they are uniquely qualified. And so to think about their own personal story uh, and how they can bring their own unique gifts and talents to the profession. And then we also have a free clinic that we run called HOPE, which is the Health Outreach uh, Patient Experience. Uh, it started a number of years ago, and, and you both remember Dr. Joe Schwenkler. He and I were on the train heading to D.C. for a conference, and, and Joe and I were saying, we really need a clinic experience where we can get the first-year students interacting with patients, because that is something we knew we wanted to do. And we went and found a, a, a clinic that was already operating that degree to have our students. Well, years later now, we're in our fifth iteration of a physical location and the, and the concept has grown dramatically. And so what we do is one day a week, we have a clinic for those who are uninsured in Plainfield, New Jersey. And the PA faculty, along with uh, our students, and a couple of our alumni uh, see patients there. And again, it's geared for those who are uninsured. And it's, it's been a fantastic opportunity for the students to get out and interact with each other. We have it set up so that our first year students are on a team with our third year student who, who leads that interaction. And so they can really see where they're going to end up. So that has been um, an experience that has, has been good for our students and has attracted some individuals. I'm so glad you brought up Joe. The, Joe was such a great champion for the PA profession. And, you know, given that there's some vitriol out there in the medical community in a very small portion of it, but there's some challenges related to uh, our profession and, and where we're going 
or where they think we're going. Joe would be the first guy to step up and say that's BS. He was such a supporter of the PA profession. You may remember he graduated as a PA. And then as soon as he graduated, was accepted into medical school. He was one of the first physicians in the state uh, in private practice to hire a PA and continued to do so until he retired from practice and joined us. So he was our first full-time medical director. Um, And that tradition has continued today with Dr. Elizabeth DeProspero, who's joined us as a a full-time medical director. Yeah, I remember he he and at the time I was at Midwestern University in Arizona, he and our full time medical director really got along well and did a co-presentation on how to be an effective medical director at PAEA once and just just a, a lovely human being. So he really was. And, and, and we miss him. And he's you know made such a contribution to our program and and started you know initiatives that live on to this day. Yeah, what a great legacy. Mm-hmm. Matt, you also talked about the humanities a little bit. You, We just started in our program doing just a scotia medical humanities in one of our behavioral sciences courses. And, and so we have an English professor from the main campus that comes over and teaches with a, a pediatrician that has a passion for the medical humanities. And for me, what's been most interesting is just to watch students try things from a different perspective, mm-hmm. understanding the narrative of the person that's that's in front of you and maybe getting into a deeper understanding of the patient's background and reason why they're coming to you for help. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you tell us a little bit more about your own evolution of thought with medical humanities as you've been in this program? Absolutely. I don't know that entering as a student, I thought about this perspective uh, because Many of us come in thinking, I've got to learn the medicine, right? I've got to learn and everything I, everything, I, everything I need to know in medicine, pharmacology, physical diagnosis, medical interviewing, and thinking about particularly those patient, patient interactions as sort of formulaic, but came to really appreciate the impact of the relationship that as PAs or any type of healthcare provider that we form with our patients, because that's the basis for which you really can understand the patient experience and make sure you're providing the best care possible. So through the humanities, it's it's allowed us to explore that to a, to a deeper level. And the students love it. The ethics course that I teach in the first semester pulls them out of micro, pulls them out of anatomy, pulls them out of genetics, biochemistry, uh, and gets them talking. You know, we'll we'll read a piece about a medical error that was made written, you know, by a clinician and, and they'll love to dissect it. Oftentimes they drift into understanding the medicine. Why was this decision made? And I pull them back and say, let's talk about the experience. How would you feel? Do you think it's going to happen to you that you'll be involved in a medical error? What are the things you believe can prevent that from happening or how you can recover? Uh, and so the, the conversations become broader and deeper from that perspective. And I, and I think provides the opportunity to for students to do a bit more reflecting about a patient's story, right? How many times have, have we taught that the you know your way we write our soap notes is you know fifty three year old you know, Caucasian woman who presents with cough and fever? And I remember reading notes that were sent from specialists that I referred patients to, and some of those specialists would start with you know this this lovely woman who was a homemaker or an accountant. And I thought, why are they saying that? That's not, that's not relevant. That was early in my career. 
And I come to realize it helps give you the full picture of that patient and who they are outside of simply their diagnosis, right? And I think as, as I get older, um, I appreciate the fact that others might consider me more holistically than what my presenting symptom may be, right? And so relationship building is, is so essential. And, and it's so, you know, there's this whole concept of medicine that was very much um, a physician-centered, right? And I use physician because all the studies earlier on talk about that, and then swung very much to, to patient-centered. And now we really talk about a concept called relationship-centered of recognizing there's two individuals here that are interacting, and we both have to be aware of what's happening in, for ourselves as the, as the clinician and for the patient to really uh, ensure that that bond is strong and that we create an environment where a patient feels comfortable. So that's sort of you know, what we hope to accomplish. You know, and the students call my course the soft course because it's not very hard. One of the students, when we started orientation this year, she said, when are we going to have medical ethics? I don't know who teaches that, but but I'm sure, you know, that's sort of a fluff course. And I said, well, that's my course. And the students were all laughing. Oh, I didn't mean to offend you. I said, no, 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 it's okay. You know, it's not intended to be a difficult course like like anatomy. However, that's it's no less important, right? Yeah. If you don't establish a good rapport with your patient, then how are you really going to find out what's what's really troubling them most. My experience has been there's usually a few in the class that really have a hard time pivoting to this perspective that, you know, as you were talking about, they hold on to the science and, and they have a hard time getting in touch with their emotional side as to why that matters in the practice of medicine. So mm -hmm. uh, do you have any, do you have any tips on how you help them navigate that? Well, I think the first step is helping them recognize and just appreciate that that's a perspective that they have and then reflect on it and decide whether it's something they want to explore more. Probably the, the challenge we have with that is students who want the answer. And oftentimes in these situations, there is no right answer, right? And part of the problem is we, in all of our examinations and multiple assessments are asking the students to come to an answer. And oftentimes in these discussions, there is no one right answer. You sure. know, we can talk about maybe different ways the situation could be approached, but every interaction is going to be slightly different because the two individuals involved come from very different perspectives and, and life stories and, and values and beliefs. There's one concept I have challenged myself and I challenge the students is, you know, and when a patient asks you, well, well, what would you do in this situation? And I caution the students not to go down that road because it's important to say what someone else does may be very different from what you do based on your own belief system and the things that you value. And so I try to stay away from saying, well, if this was my family member, I would recommend this. Unless, of course, I know the patient very well. You know, it's, it's, it, it's right. not always possible to know um, in every encounter, right? You're working in an emergency room. You may not have the opportunity to get to know the person on that deep of a level. Uh, and I don't think that comes from a place of, of not wanting to give an answer to the patient. Sometimes you have a patient in front of you who might be more traditional and is looking for you to say, here's what you should do. And so that's sort of a belief you can uncover versus, you know, do you want help in sort of figuring out what decision works best in your life? So I think my approach continues to evolve Maybe that is realizing I know less the older I get. Maybe there's some wisdom there. I, sure. I don't know. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. 
that's been an observation of mine for students. You know, we often, well, we routinely admit students who come from a, a science background and, you know, basic sciences and hard sciences tend to be a little more cut and dried, a little more black and white. And then we transition them into clinical medicine and there's a lot of ambiguity. You know, we like, we would love to have all of the answers and all the information to make the best informed decisions, but Sometimes we, you know, we have to make decisions in the face of ambiguity without all of the information that we'd like to have. And, and that's a, that's a, I think that's a frustrating thing for students. And I think the humanities are a nice way to kind of introduce them to some of that ambiguity and, and maybe help uh, develop some of that ambiguity, ambiguity tolerance. Absolutely. You know, it, it, it's important that the students understand standard of care. You know, that's a concept, of course, we all teach because that's that's important. Um, but that you you can't deviate from that until you know the standard of care. And then you can uh, defend why you might have made a recommendation for a plan that was different than that. You know, I was chatting with a student yesterday about her struggles. And we all see examples of this, too, where the students are so high performing and have high expectations and many of them excel in the didactic portion and then sometimes are more challenged on the clinical rotations because it's it's not so cut and dried and the opposite is also true so this student you know was was uh, who was a high performing student was sharing with me how the patient interactions are much more challenging for her because it's things are not always so clear uh, and i said to her first of all be kind to yourself be compassionate the fact that you recognize that is great. Now we can figure out what a plan is to help you get beyond that. But you haven't even gone on clinicals yet. And so you can be open with your preceptors. You know, it's self-assessing is extremely important. And you share that with others who can then help you sort of work through that. And, you know, that she just sort of had this relief in her face that, okay, it's going to be, it's going to be okay. Right. I said, you know, the, the dynamics of a patient interaction are not always easy for folks to develop, but if you're intentional about it, you can get better. And I said, look at the interaction we have. You're very comfortable talking. And that's oftentimes what is happening in a patient interaction. The difference is you have to get somewhere, right? You have to make sure you get the information you need to come up with a diagnosis and a plan. So it can't simply be a, you know, a friendly conversation. There is an intention to it. And that comes with time. So, Matt, you have taken an active role in the uh, ARCPA in accreditation. Uh, tell us a little bit about your your service uh, in that way. First of all, thank you for your for your professional service in that way. And tell us a little bit about that foray into into leadership in in a little bit different realm uh, in education and with the ARCPA and the importance of accreditation to PA programs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Steph, if you'll allow me just to step back a moment, when we were talking earlier about leadership, I have not been a person who have been intentional thinking about my career trajectory and where I wanted to go. Um, And that might not be a good thing, but here here I am. And, uh, you know, early on, I had an interest in faculty development and sort of just stepped forward to, to work in that arena. And I think what happens in leadership is you sort of step forward, you do some work, and if people like what you do or enjoy working with you, you get invited back. How I ended up in accreditation, again, was not intentional, saying this is really what I want to do. 
um, there was a call for site visitors and I applied and this was in 2002. I thought that this could be interesting, you know, and it would help me learn about programs and curriculum structure, et cetera. And I never even thought about being on the commission. In fact, I was on a flight. Um, I'll do some more name dropping again. I was on a site visit with Don Morton Rias and uh, one of my first couple of site visits. And she said, I think you'd be good as a site visit chair and, and maybe even think about being a commissioner. Now that was years ago. And I thought, I'm barely figuring out how this works, you know, but thank you for that, for that vote of confidence. So a number of years later, there was a call for commissioners. I think initially I went through another nominating organization and wasn't selected. Um, but I decided I'll throw my hat in again and, and was selected and served two terms. Um, at that point, you know, that's usually term of service is a three-year term, and then you can be renewed for another three, and then you're done. I came off the commission and continued to be a site visitor. And it's sort of interesting how I ended up back. And that is I, I, I had realized that site visits were, you know, very time consuming and I wanted to dedicate time to the, to my program. And I also had concerns about whether I was uh, engaged enough or doing a good enough job. And so I was reaching out to Sharon Luke, who at that point had become the executive director and said to, to Sharon, you know, I'm really thinking of uh, no longer becoming a site visitor. And she said, that's interesting because I was calling to invite you to come back on the commission. <laughs> and I said, oh, you know, there are commissioner at large positions as the work of the commission expands, former commissioners can be invited back. And I said, well, you know, Sharon, I'm really concerned about you know, whether I'm doing an appropriate job for the ARC and for the programs, right? I, I feel very responsible um, for the work. And she said, I can tell you, you know, I review the work that is done and I wouldn't invite you if I didn't think you did a good job. I was very pleased and came back to serve. Again, that was, you know, a term that started a few years ago. Never even thought about becoming chair. It was not ever in my thought or idea uh, or plan. Um, and then a vice chair position opened up because one of the vice chairs became a staff member. So I decided I'd run for vice chair. And then that led to running for chair. I had no idea when my term started in January 2020, what was about to unfold for programs across the country. So managing, you know, my own program in the pandemic and the suspension of clinical rotations, and then working with the executive committee and the commission in uncharted territory that we had not experienced before was extremely stressful and yet recognized that there's such an importance to help programs to give some guidance. Um, and so, so that's how I ended up where I am, not intentional, but sort of just happened, which sort of is, is the sort of way things sort of happened in my career. Never set out to be program director or department chair. But I thought, okay, you know, maybe I'll throw my hat in the ring and, and, and see what happens. So, you know, my term as accreditation chair will come to an end this year. And then I'll have a year of immediate past chair. Um, but we've, we've learned so much about, I've learned so much about the commission and education, but also quite a bit about, about leadership. But I also take very seriously representing the ARC. Let's face it, nobody loves accreditation. Nobody loves to have site visits, right? I think we can say that. It's rare that someone does. But for the most part, after going through it and our own self-assessment process, we've learned something. And I think it's important because our particular process is a peer process. 
that it's important for programs to feel that they're that they're cared about and they're supported, but there are standards, let's face it. And, and that I think is important to talk about is sometimes some of the misunderstandings about accreditation, that this is really about protecting the public, which includes our students, and making sure that the program meets standards um, so that they can practice effectively and, and you know, ensure that the program they signed up for is, is and the curriculum that they're expecting is what they're getting. And it can be hard. There are many challenges for faculty members to, to sort of, to use a phrase, jump through the hoops of accreditation. Now, many of us started and think, I'm going to take a faculty job and I'm going to teach, but then realize the increasing demands on assessment uh, and scholarship. And so faculty expectations have changed, I think, dramatically over the years. And of course, it depends on your institution. But helping individuals recognize as a faculty member all of the demands that are placed on us, both in terms of curriculum development and assessment and scholarship and service and all of those things to, to reflect on what we're doing and ensure we continue to provide a high quality product. For the benefit of our listeners who might be pre-PA students, I know sometimes uh, there's a little bit of confusion for them around the different types of accreditation. So, um, and the comments that I read sometimes in different uh, social media forums is that maybe there's a little bit of confusion between provisional and probational because they seem a little, while very different, they seem, um, they seem, they could seem similar. So could you just briefly touch on the the different types of accreditation so that that's clear for pre-PA students? Absolutely. You know, the pathway for accreditation um, starts with an applicant program. And and the program go through the process of applying, getting on an agenda. The first step is being awarded provisional accreditation, which is a type of accreditation. And the process is is pretty is pretty structured uh, that your a program is awarded provisional before a class matriculates, and and so that visit happens, a class matriculates, and then there's a monitoring provisional visit and a final provisional visit. Right. So three of those within a couple of years, talk about, you know, stress for programs. And certainly the plan is is one thing. But then when you're having to engage in your plan while you'll have students in in session adds a whole nother layer of complexity. And so it's important for for students to understand that provisional is a type of accreditation. Um, And that's, you know, any program has to go through that before being awarded continuing. A number of years ago, the accreditation process changed where uh, maximum accreditation years were seven years has now increased to 10. Uh, But of course, based on how a program is performing, there could be a shorter period of time. So both provisional and continuing are types of accreditation. When a program is unable to demonstrate compliance with the standards, there is a classification called probation, and that's defined for a certain period of time. Uh, And then uh, the program will have a visit and or reports within X number of years to then demonstrate that they're in compliance and then have probation uh, removed. Um, And so probation also is an accredited program. If we go back to something I mentioned earlier about protecting the public, including students, and part of the mission is also ensuring educational excellence. But there are some 
newer requirements that many of us are used to. And one is posting your accreditation history on your website as provided by the ARC in an effort to disclose to your potential applicants, you know, the accreditation history so individuals are aware. And I think that has been something that, that may be helpful for programs. It doesn't preclude a program from, from explaining some of those uh, actions or decisions. Um, in fact, the other day, a question came up in my own class about something the student had read on the accreditation history. First of all, I was impressed that one of the students actually read it, <laughs> but it provided an opportunity to discuss it. So some of these, these initiatives the ARC is taking in terms of accreditation history, student attrition, and of course, pants pass rates are very important for students to understand or have some idea of what they can expect. We were initially required to report only our first time pass rate, but felt it was important for students to also know what the ultimate pass rate is, because there may be times where students will stress and anxiety and the first time might not pass, but eventually they do. So it gives a more complete picture, which is which is the goal. Matt, before we go, I'd love for you to share your vision for the future of Rutgers. There's so many different things going on in the PA profession these days. How are those external factors with the academy and others impacting, if any way, your program and the way you see Rutgers moving in the future? A great question, um, Kevin, in that um, the, you know, Rutgers has, as an institution has gone through transformation. When I started as a PA faculty member, you know, n none of us really thought about promotion and tenure. Uh, necessarily because we came and we did our jobs and, and we knew as long as we continued to work well, we would remain. As our institution has grown, we have a new chancellor, the expectations of faculty have changed. Um, and so one of the requirements is that all of our faculty um, hold doctoral degrees. Um, we're fortunate to have a school where that is actually supported financially by our dean. And um, it's a little bit of a change from where we were in the past. And it's not only the pursuit of doctoral degrees, but it's really a move to increase the scholarly output, not solely for the sake of the scholarly output, but for what that expertise brings to our education and our profession. And so we've every new faculty member that is now hired knows that within X number of years, they have to earn their doctoral degree to achieve assistant professorship rank. And when this went into effect a number of years ago, we had some faculty who, who left because it really did not fit with their own personal or, or career aspirations. So that is a difference from what we had in the past. Uh, and, and I, as someone who has watched this happen, for both myself and colleagues, I really appreciate the experience and the education that our faculty receive and how that translates into the education that we provide. You know, it's not just simply about having the title, it's really about what the educational experience brings to you as a faculty member uniquely. So that is, is one thing that happened as, as well as sort of the scholarly output. Um, we happen to be housed in a, in a school of health professions, which is I think the largest, if not one of the largest health profession schools in the nation with over 40 something programs. And we are fortunate in that this increased expectation for scholarship has also brought many of our departments together working on research projects. I happen to be involved in one currently with our psychosocial rehab department. And it, the goal is to talk about experiences of patients with serious mental illness 
and how physician assistants can interact with them in a way that provides better outcomes because we all know that folks with serious mental illness tend to die younger than most individuals because of uh, not accessing healthcare. So this grant was about doing a qualitative study, talking with folks with serious mental illness and also interviewing PA students in terms of what their concerns or fears were. And we've done all of that work and we're about to this Friday have an educational session. We will bring the groups together and, and talk about ways to interact that will provide some better outcomes. So I give this an example of, of the type of opportunities we're able to engage in because of our school. We happen to also be on the same building as our psychosocial rehab department, but with you know, physical therapy, nutrition, uh, various health informatics programs. And so that provides us with opportunities that uh, are really beneficial to our students. Um, but um, in terms of the future, you know, we, we went through a revision of our didactic curriculum very recently, and we're in the process of going through a revision with our clinical curriculum. And those are things that typically will happen, right? We all go through these cycles. Where we're going in the future is sort of something we're monitoring, monitoring the profession, right? Certainly, there are uh, ongoing discussions about entry-level doctoral degrees for PAs. And so having a faculty with doctoral degrees will allow us, should that ever be a, an expectation, that we could uh, develop that type of program. But that's, you know, that's just one thing. I, you know, I think our mission will always be to ensure we educate physician assistants who can get into the workforce and provide care and make sure we're doing that based on current practices. So as a department, we have a number of things that we're, we're thinking about now that I've been uh, appointed chair. Um, one of my goals is to grow, but to think about what are some programs that could grow within the department. And we're potentially going to explore some postgrad residencies. Our own healthcare system is looking to partner in a more meaningful way to develop their workforce needs. And we did have a faculty practice at one point for neurosurgery and orthopedic PAs, which was an interesting experiment. Um, didn't quite turn out the way we had planned, but we learned a lot from it. And so we now are going to start engaging in some of those conversations. Whether we do a postgrad doctoral program is sort of a discussion to, to be had. But, you know, right now, near term, over the next year, for us, it's really making sure that we shore up our program, that um, we have you know, continue to have faculty in positions where they're comfortable and no expectations are aware of what the expectations are. And my job, I think, as chair is to make sure people have the resources they need to excel um, and meet all the expectations of scholarship, service, and teaching. You know, we have, we have plans to potentially expand our HOPE Clinic. It is currently only for PA students, uh, but there's a, a strong desire to discuss how we could have other health profession students participate in that. You know, our PT program has its own clinic. We have a speech language pathology program has its own clinic and we can refer to each other. Uh, but the more we can do interdisciplinary, I think is also uh, gonna be uh, something that will contribute to student success and ultimately impact patients. So nothing else too major on the horizon uh, at this, uh, as I said, it's really gonna be sitting back, watching the PA landscape and, and making sure we're positioned well to meet whatever uh, expectations are placed upon us. Yeah, I think I think all of us are anxiously watching where, where it ends up. So, well, Matt, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We have really enjoyed your insights and hearing a little bit more about accreditation and about Rutgers University. Uh, thanks for being with us today. 
Thank you both. Uh, you know, I, I really admire the work that you're doing, uh, it, not only in PA education, but specifically with this podcast, you know, providing others with an opportunity to give out accurate information and uh, hearing directly from sources. So thank you both. And I, I look forward to continuing to listen to your podcasts. Well, we'd like to thank our guest, Mr. Matt McQuillan, for joining us today and enlightening us about Rutgers University, accreditation, and the really interesting conversation we had related to medical humanities. It is clear that Rutgers has a really impressive program, a very thoughtful approach to the curriculum, to community service, and a legacy of really great leaders. Tune in next week as we speak with Ms. Grace Landell from Toro University in Vallejo, California. We talked to Grace about her strong history of service to the profession, her work in Alaska and Washington State prior to joining California, and her history of leadership to a wide variety of different aspects in PA profession, including diversity. Until next time, I wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Southern California.